Our guest today is filmmaker and animator Liam Lopinto. Now, he is a first-generation Iranian-American, and he graduated from NYU Tisch's UGF-TV program in 2017. He also studied at Waseda University in Tokyo and attended CalArts Character Animation Program from 2017 to 2021. Now, his past film, French Fly, was selected for CAA Mobius Showcase, and his documentary, Karam Camera, was made in partnership with Karam Foundation, focusing on empowering young Syrian refugees. Now, through the help of his old sketchbook, Liam Lopinto's current short film, The Old Young Crow, tells the story of a little Iranian boy, now an old man, reflecting on his time in Tokyo as a boy. And after six years in the making with the help of his family and having won Best of Festival at Palm Springs International Short Fest, Special Jury Recognition Award at Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival, his short film has been qualified to be considered for a 2024 Academy Award. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome filmmaker and animator Liam Lopinto and his Oscar-qualified short film, The Old Young Crow, to the show. Welcome, Liam. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege. Well, how did you get into filmmaking? That's a great question. I um, I think I had just been making films since I was about 14 or 13 or so. I think I was just writing scripts and doing acting. I think a lot of it was based off of comedy, too. I, I just had a group of friends that I just wanted to make films with. I, I taught myself Flash. We made like a really crude a uh, couple animated films when I was uh, when I was a teenager. I spent a lot of time doing that. By the way, I like spent like I think I just spent more time working on learning how to make films than I did my own schoolwork, which was nuts because I was applying for pre med. <laughs> so, so like so because I had this bonehead idea that I was going to be able to do both. Like I could like I could become a doctor like my grandfather, but I could also make films on the side. And it wasn't until like my first day at NYU and I was in bio 101 and I was like, there is no way in hell that I'm going to be able to do both of this. And one of these I'm explicitly more passionate about than the other. And from NYU's College of Arts and Science program, I transferred into uh, Tisch. I transferred into their undergraduate film and TV program. And yeah, it was um, it, it was awesome. It felt like I was finally on the right path. Uh, and I spent time studying my animation there. And I kind of just grew more passionate about uh, learning more and more and more about cinema and kind of like turning it into a little bit of a journey. I was obsessed with Japanese film. Uh, I think I was about 16. I was in a Barnes and Noble and there was the Criterion Collection section. And I just like, like the, I think I just, I had bought the copy of Seven Samurai uh, one night and I stayed up all night watching it. I went through every single special feature or every single you know bit of Kurosawa talking about like his filmmaking journey. And I like, I think from that point on, I mean, I, I went back routinely to that section in the Criterion Collection and I basically went through the odyssey uh, of Japanese cinema that was available at that Barnes and Noble. And uh, it, it took me through all of their directors. And, and from that point, I, was, I basically decided like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna learn the language, I'm gonna study uh, Japanese 
and so I can make a film there and speak the language. So I, I know how to uh, direct something there. And I, I went to, uh, when I went to NYU, I studied Japanese for about two years, right before I studied abroad there at Waseda. And when I was there, I had taken a Japanese uh, film director's class and my teacher, Karen, uh, saw that I was really interested in, in making a film and she knew I was Iranian American and she was like, you have to meet Shorei. She was Abbas Kiristami's translator and assistant. You, you have to meet her. And I did. And she was so lovely. And she was like, you know, Liam, you know, like if you want to make a film, you want to learn how to make a film. We have legendary Iranian directors that are coming this year. You know, Kiristami just passed away. You know, why don't you come to all these retrospectives? And I started going. I, I went to like a dozen that were just over the course of that year. I met Amir Naderi, whose film uh, The Runner is one of the classics of, uh, and one of the beginning films of that first Iranian new wave. I met uh, director Makhmal Boff, whose films A Moment of Innocence and Salam Cinema uh, are just like Gabe. They're like they're very much touchstones for for Iranian filmmakers, and they paved the way for that kind of cinema, including Kiristami's own cinema. But like watching those films, watching Where's the Friend's House and Willow in the Wind, like galvanized me like really, really solidly at that point. I knew like from that moment on, I was like, I'm going to make a film. It's going to be an Iranian boy in Japan. And around the same time, I was working on a application for animation school at CalArts. And I was doing a lot of sketching in like graveyards and parks and things like that because the environments were really interesting they were just very captivating uh and peaceful and quiet to draw and just one day like this big crow just lands on the the grave across from me and it just kind of had that was the initial like inception of the idea and had this idea incubating we were able to contact uh through a network of Iranian diaspora in Japan. And we found uh, this man, Hamid, and he texts us back and he's like, you guys are looking for, you know, a boy for the film. Well, how is, how about my son? And we cast him based off a photo. He was just a cute kid with his, his like his arms back, you know, to the wall. And I was like, he's perfect. For the old lady, for Chio in the film, it was Shorei's best friend in Japan, Yamashita-san, you know, who had like, helped her acclimate to Japan when she had come here from Iran. And the priest in the film is one of Yamashita-san's friends from theater school. So the entire cast wasn't, you know, necessarily formed in, in the more traditional way, but it was an organic family kind of casting process including my grandfather who narrates the film and plays the older version of the character. So the four principal like actors in the film are all kind of extensions of this uh, journey and process. And we shot that film two weekends in November of 2016. Our footage but had like all these lighting continuity errors. Like I couldn't use about maybe a quarter of it because it was just unusable. Uh, there was all these audio errors because basically all of the onset dialogue was corrupted or was unusable or you couldn't hear anything. The only thing we had was the wild takes. Uh, and I was 21 at the time and I was like going through all this stuff. <laughs> and I remember being so discouraged when I got back to the States after living there 
And I was like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to make this film. I had just like a month later, I got accepted to CalArts. And then each year, like following that, I would pick up the film and I'd be like, all right, I'm going to figure out a way this year. I'm going to I'm going to figure out a way. I'm just going to finish it. And I never did. For four years, I kept picking it up and like I, I had no idea how to finish this film. And then one year out of graduating from CalArts, I had gone through this very intense personal health crisis. I moved back home with my my mom and my dad. And I basically ha still had the sketchbook. And what happened was as like an act of like personal, you know, therapy, I took the remaining footage that I had in uh, whatever camera, uh, like SD cards that I still had. I put it into Premiere and I started putting it on a timeline. And I'm like, what can I do? You know, what can I do here? Um, and I thought about the fact that my grandfather is coming back from Iran. I decided to come up with a new perspective of looking at the film that would like mirror um, what was going on personally in my life, which was the idea of like looking back on a time in my life when I shot the film. And then the narrative of the film then became centered around an older version of the character looking back on his life. So it ended up paralleling that just like how when I was in Japan, it paralleled my experience of reconnecting with my own culture while being in Japan. So there were these two kind of experiences that I was uh, drawing upon. So I spent three months doing this, like putting every single, like waking up crack of dawn and just like figuring out how I wanted to do the sketchbook. My grandfather came back. We recorded all the lines. He's 95 when we were doing this. He's 96 now. Um, and uh, it we got the rights to the Persian pop song that is in the film, the Gugush song. Uh, and from there, I was able to reverse engineer this film into what it ended up being. And then after three or four months of animation, uh, by the third month calling in, you know, asking for friends help, you know, I commissioned somebody I really loved whose work I knew from uh, commercials for Adult Swim. And I was like, I need, you know, I just need help finishing up this film. I mean, this film was made for like 1500 bucks, like way back in 2016 for those two weekends. And it obviously the post-production was like, like at least. Yeah, it was it was like 10 times that, you know, altogether finishing it up. But altogether, this is like a nickel of a film. Um, and uh, like the fact that I had got it done, I didn't expect much from this, you know, to be honest with you. I, I knew I had something cool when my mom saw the hand going into the sketchbook, you know, and she was like, OK, so this is what you're doing. And I think I felt that validation, you know, at, at that point. And uh it, it was pretty much just this journey for me about like, you know, reconnecting with my own family, reconnecting with my own culture, like finding out why I make movies in, in the first place, which is kind of the theme of the film, which is about reclamation. It's like about, you know, no matter where you are, you know, you can reclaim your culture, uh, maybe necessarily not through necessarily through another culture, but through just an act of like self-therapy and self-discovery, you know, and about, you know, having determination and you know, not giving up 
And uh, I hope that those are the things that people like, you know, gleam from this film because that's the stuff that I found in making it. Well, I like the fact that you took two completely different cultures and meshed them together from Iranian to Japanese. And it flows so well because I was watching the film multiple times and I'm thinking, okay, you have, you have amazing, but like with, with the film that you said you could use, it was amazing cinematography. And then I noticed that you had multiple mixtures of different animation techniques. I saw crayon, maybe charcoal, there was ink pen, there's 3D animation. But it all flowed so well. It also flowed well with the story because every element of the film, nothing draws you away from missing the story. So nothing was distracting, but everything was catching the audience's attention. It's like every frame you were the audience was paying attention to and i just thought it was was brilliant um in, in that aspect so this is you know and, and i'm hearing a lot of talk about this film which is a good thing and i can't believe that it was six years in the making i can't believe it either to be honest with you. <laughs> oh my god you have no idea how much of a relief it is for it to be done more than all of the accolades or whatever like the the fact that it's done is so nice. <laughs> well, I have to ask you because you spent time in Japan and, and I've seen other films where it, from animation to uh, live, live action and where there's a crow. And in Japanese culture, what is the significance of the crow? Uh, the crow has kind of many significances. It's it's part of Japanese yokai and folk culture. Uh, I mean, you can kind of read various stories about where the crow comes in as like a demon spirit or a helpful spirit. Um, but it takes on multiple meanings. It's considered intelligent. Um, it's a complete opposite of what the Iranian <laughs> meanings of crows are. Crows are considered uh, like uh, like ill and uh like something that is like not not necessarily a bad omen but something like oh you're uh you're uh, you're as bad as a crow or you're not as uh you know worthy as you're like you're basically not as worthy you're not as good you're 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 like a crow uh and that's <laughs> obviously that's completely different the the perspectives of the crows in uh these two cultures are very different and originally without even researching i thought that the crow was like revered in iran i mean it's an intelligent bird it it has definitely a whole bunch of connections to nature uh, to spirituality in so many cultures, but it wasn't in Iran. It, it was not. So I hope I'm doing some PR for crows here. Well, crows yeah, because I was, I had a, an interview with a, um, about, it was, it was a nature film documentary and, um, the antagonist was the Raven, but yeah. they showcased at the fact that the Raven is extremely intelligent it remembers its surroundings, you know, in a way, depending on where they, they're found, they can be a dumpster bird because once they find that food source, they always keep coming back. 
but uh, but I've seen films to where the crow was revered, you know, yeah. and so and in this film, you know, it comes across as very very positive, and but I want to ask you something because when I was watching the film, was the pen that Chiro gave to the little boy was the pen a sign for the little boy to carry on the talent and the legacy of the old woman's son? That's a good question. It's a little bit of both. I think the, I think for me, when, when I was writing that, and I, I thought of the aspect of the pen, it, it, it's more of a sign of good faith. You know, it's more of a sign of like, listen, my son was like you, you know, and he disappeared into his aisle of loneliness um you know instead of engaging with other people i mean like just to remember is like this is a little boy who's like sketching in a graveyard right he's clearly not doing well he's clearly not processed his own mom's death you know he's clearly alone he doesn't have many friends uh he's he's, he's hiding away eating and drawing here um for i think for Chio, like in terms of the whole relationship that they have together it's about saying you know you're talented you're worthy you know, like the fact that you came here from another place doesn't mean you don't belong here. You know, like that your voice and your drawings and your art and uh, you, like Merdod, you are are somebody worth like our confidence. You know, and uh, for me, that's that's basically the lesson that he takes with him as an old man. And just to understand, it's an unreliable narrator. This is a guy looking back at his entire life, you know, through a sketchbook. We don't know all the details. We're not privy to all of that. We're, we're seeing it through the lens of him looking back on his childhood. But we know that the thing that lives with him up until his 80s and 90s is this idea of this encounter that he had, this mystical encounter he had at a graveyard that shaped his entire way of looking at the world, which is, you know, that having that sense of self-determination and self-discovery and like, you know, finding your own culture and reclaiming it in your own land, you know, is going to be worth it in the long term, and that the right people and entities and spirits are going to help guide you on that. Well, since you have spent a few years in Japan yourself, learn the culture, learn the language, how do the Japanese view uh, foreigners in their own country? It's, it's mixed. I, I've had pretty great experiences, actually, especially, and I think this probably defined the film, you know, is like, the elderly population in Japan has always been very warm to me. They've always been uh, very, like, I can give you like a couple different examples. I met a wonderful fisherwoman in the south of Japan, and we had a lovely talk about love and life, even though my Japanese wasn't the best at the time, but I tried uh, I tried. It got better. It got much better the more I lived. I loved there. Uh, lived there. Um, there was an encounter I had in the north of Japan, where a an elderly man bought me corn soup, like hot corn soup, because he saw I was freezing. So I spent so much time drawing, even in the winter outside. And he was like, you know, Nichon, you're so cold. Like, <laughs> you're like, you look like you're about to like get pneumonia. Here, drink this hot corn soup, and I'll show you where the train station is. And I had another encounter similar to that where a woman put out a heater for me while and put, gave me a blanket while I was drawing a, uh, a street, like, you know, just like a, like a cross street. 
and she gave me a, a, some green tea and she was like, you know, you're, you look so cold. I need to take care of you. I would get lost at a certain point and I would just get, I would just wander with these elderly Japanese people. They just take me, you know, they'd be like, Oh, I'm walking there too. You know, I'm going to let, let's go together. I, I never met an unpleasant, uh, folk in, in, uh, in Japan. You would, you get, sometimes you get looks, you know, as a foreigner, sometimes you wouldn't, sometimes people wouldn't sit next to you, you know, on like the train and stuff like that. But in the deepest regard, most people are very interested in where you come from, what your story is, why are you here in, in Japan? And of course, the biggest thing is if you start speaking like, you know, decent to good Japanese, they're massively impressed and they'll hit you with the Nihongo Jozu line, which just means like, oh, your Japanese is so good. Even even if you don't say that many great things, the fact that you've said some stuff is like, you know, it, it is worthy of uh, is worthy of some kind of praise. Well, yeah, because you literally took the effort to try to learn and to try to communicate and that causes another culture to, to, you know, feel, you know, be positive towards you because, you know, learning and learning someone else's language goes a long way. And one of the things about this film that I noticed, which I thought was really kind of cool because meshing the Iranian boy into a Japanese culture, just by looking at the boy, he could almost, he could almost pass as Japanese because I kept looking at the the young boy. I'm thinking, the hair is the same, you know, the skin tone could almost be the same. And I'm thinking, he blends in so well that when you watch the film, you're not really picking up the complete differences between the two cultures because you mesh them so well together. And it's a beautiful story. I mean, for you. What has been the audience's reaction to the film and have the audiences come up with their own interpretation of the story? Yeah, I mean, obviously the gold of this whole thing has been that both cultures have been extremely receptive uh, to the story, that they've both found different meanings. Uh, the Japanese are extremely interested in what the Iranian perspective on crows was and I'm like at first I like totally didn't know I was like oh they totally revere them and then I was like oh wait no they think they're, they're complete crap <laughs> uh, so I'm doing the PR for them obviously I'm trying to improve the crow legacy in, in Iran but uh, to answer your question or answer your query before now who's the son who's the boy he's half Japanese his mom is Japanese so he does have he, he is. He's of uh, Persian and Japanese ancestry, um, and, which is really great because he has this very worldwide face. You know, every it seems like every culture that I have encountered who have like played the film, whether it's in Indonesia or the Philippines or in Mexico in Central America or in the Middle East, in, in Europe. Uh, Asian populations have been able to relate to this boy. You know, they have seen themselves, you know, in, in this boy, even black audiences, Latin audiences, you know, they, they see themselves in, in, in this kid because he has such a wide appealing look, you know, and he has beautiful eyes, these kind of beautiful eyes that kind of draw you in 
to the narrative. And I think what moves me when I get to show this film is when people ask, like, can I show this to my uh, mom and my dad? Uh, can I show this to my family? Because I think they would love this. Like, I showed this to Ramin Bahrani like way back, he's the director of Chop Shop and Man Push Cart. His films were very, very important to me when I was like an early teenager. My uncle gave me the DVD of like Man Push Cart. He's like, there's an Iranian American director, you know, who did this. It's about a Pakistani uh, like food cart driver. I was, I was captive. I didn't know that any of us like made films at that point, <laughs> I gotta be honest, <laughs> you know? So like seeing that was incredible. And then meeting him, you know, at, at film forum in New York. And then I said, I I've just made this film, you know, and he's like, Oh, send it to me, show it to me. The next day he gets back to me, you know, this is a guy who's an Academy award nominee and he just gets back to me like the day after. And he's like, I love this. Can I show this film to every single one of my family members, you know? And that was when I was like, I, I felt like what the mission that I was on was accomplished. You know, this idea of wanting to share this with, your family, you know, and make this a family experience. Uh, and like, that was, that was important because that was the experience of making the film. The making of this film was a family experience of sharing it with my family, asking for help, you know, knowing that I don't have all the answers, you know, and that I, I might be able to work as hard as I want on it, but I still need help in the end to get it done. And so well, seeing people share it with their family is, is beautiful to me. Well, you know, I, on this side of things, it's been it's been an eye opener and a blessing to talk to filmmakers, film directors from all over the world. I mean, Afghanistan, Iranian, uh, Iran, um, Jordan, Syria, you know, Tunisia, you know, uh, and it's it's uh, it is so great to see the different perspectives, um, the eye. Uh, that they have for film and storytelling. And, you know, there there is such a bigger world of film outside of Hollywood, you know, outside of Canada. It seems like only, you know, Hollywood and Canada are the only ones really, you know, everybody acts like they're the only places making films, but it's not. It's South America. It's the Middle East. You know, film is being made everywhere. But there's a lot of beautiful stories to be told and like you said, that young boy crosses so many cultural boundaries to when this film is shown in multiple film festivals. I mean, you got a home run here. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And guess what? He's 15 years old and he completely forgot we made a film. You know, he's like, he has been so long. I showed him the film, like seeing his gangly body. <laughs> You know, like walk down the stairs and I'm like, no, what the he's <laughs> like gangly. He's like a teenager. He's like, uh, you know, and he was like, I showed his family the film and we're just sitting all there. And like, he's like, I'm like, now, do you remember? And I showed him the sketchbook and he's like, do you remember the, the film? And he's like, uh, not really. Uh, I kind of remember the bike. You know, we watched, we watched the film together, all of his family, and he's like, hey, this is pretty good. <laughs> and doesn't even realize that it's actually him in the film or even remember making it. 
Is <laughs> even know his mom is like she's like oh thank you so much for like you know uh, <laughs> carving a performance out of my son he laughed in every take which is true half of the editing philosophy in this film was like chopping it in between his giggles you know because he would laugh on one side and then he would laugh at the end and so the editing of the taste had to come from what parts was he actually serious during the during the uh during the shot and his brother literally comes back home from his part-time job he like looks over what we're doing smacks him on the back of the head and he's like you didn't tell me you were in a film and he's like i didn't even remember <laughs> that that is so funny because to me what makes film so good is sometimes the backstories behind the film is it's just a whole nother story to tell because it shows what filmmakers have to go through to get a project to come to life even with all the hardships uh, bad audio bad lighting you know and but to have something come up like this and then end up being oscar qualified that must have been a shock to you Oh, completely. And I'll tell you something. I was in Japan when they announced that thing. I literally, I, I did not, obviously, full disclosure, this is my first film outside of uh, film school. You know, I, I went to NYU, then I went to CalArts, and I've only known kind of the indoor corridors of, of like making a film in those kind of environments. Never truly submitted anything to like film festivals besides the film we made for my friend. And uh, like, when I was applying. I had no idea about premiere status. I just kind of randomly applied. You know, there was like SCAD Savannah Film Festival, which I was just at. I didn't even know it was called SCAD. I thought it was called SCAB. The reviews on Film Freeway were so good. So I just kind of applied. I was like, this looks like a good festival. I don't know what how late it was, but I thought it was SCAB, but not SCAD. Uh, and I, when I, I got into Palm Springs, I knew that was a good one because they had accepted Marvin's film that we made for him the year before. And so I was like, you know what, this year I'm going to go. And they put me in the opening night block and I was like, that's pretty cool. And I was like, uh, opening night, uh, which I also didn't know what that means. I thought they'd do like a random assortment when they do these films. I thought they, they oh, randomly, you're just like part of an opening night kind of thing. Right. Um, and it was bewildering to be able to be in an environment to meet all these amazing filmmakers, people I'm still in contact with today. And like I actively we, we share and we, we talk about our next films and things like that. And then to like leave three days later to go to Japan, to go to Short Shorts Film Festival, to show the film in Japan, to meet Yamashita-san, who plays Chio in the film again, show everybody to be like, yeah, like, hey, everybody, nice to see everybody again to be in the business hotel in Shibuya and like I texted my mom I was like having a good I was so tired from jet lag and I got the phone on my belly and then like all of a sudden like a fire just it just rings and I see the Hollywood Reporter article and I see my friend Max share with me the award and everything like looks at it and I'm like dude no what you know like ah I was like, it was it was so bewildering because I had nobody to talk to about this. I was just kind of sitting around. I went to the fast food joint Matsuya in Tokyo, and I I got a beef bowl, and I got a croissant from the convenience store, and I just kind of sat around. I didn't have anybody to like talk to about this. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting, you know. I'm just here, like nobody else, you know. It's just like I'm here by myself. And then obviously it became an odyssey of like, you know, finding Catherine next and going down this whole like route 
towards going into to being in this position right now to Ari and and Rika like jumping on board, you know, on this film to the traction to like meeting Jonas, the director of Flea, who was part of my like rehabilitation process in watching that film with my family and sharing that to like this whole circular kind of thing that that occurred. And also like my complete lack of understanding of this whole process (laughs) kind of being part of it too. Like, uh, am I doing the right thing? What what am I doing? Am I contacting the right people? Am I doing it? Well, you know, know? it's amazing that you did it on your own. And of course, you know, hooking up with Catherine at London Flair, that's like one of the best PRs when it comes to short films or films or whatever, because they know exactly what they're doing. And, you know, and it was funny because I have done so many short film interviews, you know, probably 50 of them. And to hear that some people, they sit there and they fill out all the paperwork on their own. They halfway don't know what they're doing. They get their film submitted. In some way, somehow, they ended up being uh, either Oscar qualified or shortlisted or nominated. And then, then you get those that are going through maybe some of those film festival people that know how to fill it all out get everything submitted to like over 100 film festivals across the world and just to see all the different journeys that everybody goes through and then they get the call and you know here here we are looking at the next couple of weeks that the the shortlist is going to be announced and you know I'm a hearing I'm hearing a little bit of buzz on on the old young crow I would be bewildered. I I don't think I would actually believe anything like that. I think I'd still be in in the realm of like somebody's gonna take this away. <laughs> it's just gonna. Some, this is not permanent. Somebody's gonna like you know be like just kidding. You know. Yeah, yeah, this is gonna disappear like the pen did in the film. <laughs> exactly. Like this is a ghost. This is as big of a ghost as the two people. <laughs> well, do, do you have any new projects coming up in the future? I, I do. I, I'm working on a film about my friend Mark Norell. He is. Uh, it's a. It's a. It's a feature-length documentary that also combines animation, and live action. The little table I have over here, actually, I just set up is is for my little stop-motion setup. He's a paleontologist. He's the head of the Paleontology and Natural History Museum. He's the guy who discovered that like uh, dinosaurs have feathers. You know, he suffered two simultaneous heart attacks during the pandemic, uh, and he was dead for like 20 minutes came back to life this is a dude who spent his entire life digging up fossils you know and like archiving and presenting them and almost bringing them back to life in a specific way and it's just like the metaphor here was like digging at me i was like and i was like digging that's a great title i'm gonna just oh you know what i'm gonna we're gonna make a film we're gonna show paleontology to people we're gonna find a way through animation to bring movement and the paleontological aspects to life. We're going to show the story of you attempting to go on this dig, you know, in uh, Mongolia again, even though your motor and speech functions are all impaired and that you're going through active physical therapy in order to do that. Like, there is just something about this uh, film that I'm so passionate about in terms of, like, displaying mortality and finding ways in animation, just kind of like how I did with Crow, and this is kind of like my like dogma going forward. Can I make it feel invisible, even if it's not invisible? Can I make it feel so organic that you need it in the movie? It's not a gimmick. 
that like I can find budgetary and economic ways of using animation in a way that aids the story and, and like that you need it. You need it in the film in order for the film to work. And because uh, I love animation and regardless if I make live action or animation, I, I, I want to I need to put my fingerprints like on stuff like it's very important to me, even if I got like six blisters like I did with Crow, like even if I get all the blisters, you know, like, I still want to try, you know, I feel like that's the journey in making these kind of films is, you know, especially with AI and all these things that are kind of going to dehumanize the way that we look at art. And I think as artists and filmmakers, it's kind of like up to us to rehumanize our art, you know, in the face of all the dehumanization. Yeah. And I think that every filmmaker, every animator, every actor, and it all it's going to come down to the directors, too, and the writers to fight AI. And it's the studios that are leaning on it because of money. But everybody who is in the creative process needs to fight tooth and nail to keep the art of filmmaking alive. And I can't wait to see that feature film uh, because you did so well with, you know, the live action. You did so well with the different types of animation in this film. Uh, And ladies and gentlemen, this is a film you really have to see. And if you are an upcoming filmmaker, maybe you're wanting to get into animation, this short film the old young crow this is an amazing lesson in filmmaking and even animation so it's a great uh teaching tool that you even created liam i i'm i'm glad you know i hope you know the best case scenario in in, like in any displaced people's life is is the mayor dodd thing is to be able to grow old and be able to like reflect on uh, on your life and uh i hope that you know when people watch this film that they you know that they know that they can reclaim aspects of themselves and that filmmaking is an act of catharsis and therapy like it was for me you know that you, you can rediscover things and it's not over you know like you might have some film on like a, an sd card or something like that and that doesn't mean it's the end you know, you can you can salvage and reclaim and resurrect things, you know, through art. So, yeah, I hope that's it. That. Well, man, I want to I want to thank you, Liam, for sharing your Oscar qualifying short film with us today. And good luck. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, you can catch all the replays of our interviews with the top film directors, producers, screenwriters, actors and so much more on our YouTube channel Bond on Cinema. We're also available on over a dozen audio platforms as well. So I want to thank you for watching and listening. And make sure when you get the chance, you have got to see The Old Young Crow by Liam Lopinto. It is a film to see. I think this is going to be a great teaching tool in the areas of filmmaking and animation. And who knows? Maybe he'll be carrying that golden statue here pretty soon. Uh, So... We'll, we'll be praying for that for you, Liam, because uh, you've got a film that stands out among the rest. And ladies and gentlemen, remember, filmmaking is an art, and Bond on Cinema is keeping that creative art of life. And people like Liam Lapinto is too. And as for me, I hope to see you at the movies.